Jen Bosworth Ramirez. And I'm Gina Polici. We went to theater school together. We survived it, but we didn't quite understand it. 20 years later, we're digging deep, talking to our guests about their experiences and trying to make sense of it all. We survived theater school, and you will too. Are we famous yet? at the videos yes. and I was like, ooh, I don't know about this. I think I need to start wearing makeup. So, um, thank you. You look gorgeous. How are you doing? So, yeah. Hi! I'm finally, many things are happening. Many things are happening. So, I finally, even though I'm coughing still a little, I finally feel like I am, I like kicked the pneumonia bronchitis situation. A little, mostly. Thank you. I... Yeah, I went, we went away and then to Ventura and I slash Ojai and I really rested and I really, there was one day I worked, but I really mostly rested and I just really was like, okay, I need actual ass downtime. Um, and yeah, and then I started to heal and I was also on praise God for antibiotics. And then um, the thing that really helped me really kick it was I hadn't exercised my lungs in a really long time at all because I was so sick that I just was like who wants to like walk or and, and it was 107 degrees so it's like who wants to exercise in that so my cousin my sister came in town eyes that's like a big eyebrow raise for to drop my niece off to college and um we went on a hike uh to Griffith but like a sloping hike not a crazy hike and I was like, I don't think I'm going to be able to do it. And it actually helped my lungs to, like, feel like they were contributing to fucking something. And me, like, even they exercise. Like, I forgot. I always forget. Even like, a sense of purpose. Right. Right. And also, like, to, yeah, to have a job. And they were, like, like, to be exercised. And I was like, oh, I forgot that, like, the lungs, and, and it's interesting in this whole COVID situation, like, the lungs need to work too. And I never understood in hospitals because I spent quite a long time in them. Why they had those breathing, um, like tube things that you blow the ball and the ball floats up. You have to, I thought that was so dumb until I had bronchitis and pneumonia. And I was like, Oh, they have to work. Like they have to be expanded. If you don't use them and work them, they get it's not good. When when my dad, you know, my dad had this really bad car accident when I was like nine years old. And um, yeah. he rolled 40 times and he wasn't wearing a seatbelt, which saved his life because he was in a convertible. But of course, the reason he got into the accident was because he was drinking. Anyway, he broke everything. Like he broke six ribs and he had one of, the, he had oh to spend God. one year lying on an egg crate mattress on the floor one year and for the rest of his life every time he sneezed or coughed it hurt his ribs but he he had one of those things like you're talking about and as a child I could not get it to the height that it was supposed to go I shudder to think what it would be like right now so that was a good reminder to exercise our lungs I make sure my breathing capacity is good and and, and even Right. And it, it and it's like, I always literally thought, oh, you exercise to be skinny. Sure, that is the sure, only, yeah. only mm-hmm. reason. 
no other like if you had asked me i'd say oh there's no other reason yeah. what are you talking about but now i'm like oh these parts of us need actual exercising Girl, literally the lies, I, I just it the blew lies, my mind the I was, lies the lies it's, just, it's endless the yes lies. hey let me run this by you oh i think we're buying a house <gasps> What? This is the craziest. Oh my God. Not in. Yeah. Okay. This is what went down. So this is so crazy. Miles job stuff has evened out in terms of like, there's just so much going on that I can't talk about, but which is makes for terrible radio, but uh, podcasting. But anyway, the point is we're, we're a little stable. So we went to Ventura and I was like, I fucking love this town. I love Ventura. It's an hour away. It's a weird, like, think Lost Boys, right? Like, Lost Boys, the movie, is, is really Santa cruz But, like, that's what this town reminded me of. It's not, so it's in Ventura County. So it's, like, an hour northwest. It's on the beach. Um, and I was like, I love this town. I, I, I love it here. There's so many brown folk. It's heavily, heavily you know, Latine. And it's, like, so, anyway, I was like, I love it. But I bet I can't afford it, like, anywhere in California. Well, it turns out that Ventura is about 500000 less on a house than L.A. So I was like, wait, what? So we saw this darling house that was that is was small but, like, beautiful craftsman. And, um, you know, I'll just say, I'll be totally transparent. It was $729,000, which is still a shit ton of money. But I looked at the same exact property almost in, in, in Pasadena for $1.3 million for yeah. a two-bedroom, one-bath. Yeah. Two bedroom, one bath. Got pre-approved. I've never been pre-approved for anything in my goddamn life. <laughs> we got pre-approved for a mortgage. I couldn't, Gina, I couldn't, but when we got the pre-approval letter, like I literally, speaking of lies, I was like, okay, well, just expect him to come back and say, we can't do anything for you. Yeah, right. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Just yeah. really know it's not going to work. And he wrote back. And was like, here's what we can do on this house, the mortgage-wise. And it's comparable. It's in the ballpark of what we're paying in rent. And I was like, I don't want to be going into my middle age and later years in no space. It really takes a toll. It really takes a toll on your psyche in a way that you can't really account for until you go from no space to having space. And then you go, oh my gosh, there's these three specific muscles in my shoulders that have been tense for the entire time I've been living in a city, you know, decades in some cases. So it's a whole different, I could build a little studio, like all the things. So, um, yeah, so I'm grateful. Never would occur to me. Never would have occurred to me. Never. Do you care to say anything about your sister's visit? Well, you know what is, yes. And what is, um, so comforting to me again, you know, if you listen to this podcast, you're like, Oh my God, Jen, shut up. But, um, about the truth. Okay. The truth is the fucking truth of, and even, even if it changes from person to person, that person's truth is the truth. And my truth is I feel so she came and she stayed not with me because I just, that what we were out of town and then she stayed in my house while we were gone, which was fine with her, with my niece for one night. And then I saw her one day and that was, that was fine. Um, and then she stayed with my cousin and it was, let's just say it was very, the, for me, my experience was, oh, someone else besides me sees the challenges. And that's what I will say about that. There is something about being witnessed and having someone else go, 
I see, I feel what you're talking about. Yes. Yeah. I, I relate very deeply to that because people who are good at um, image, um, image uh, management, at image management, a, uh, a term I like is apparent competent. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. I love that. I've never heard that apparent competent. That is it. Yes. Many, many people in life are apparently competent because all of their energy and effort goes into projecting very much just that idea and to be at home with them is a completely different thing. And I'm not saying like, oh, you should always be competent in all areas of life or that I'm competent in all areas of life. I'm just saying like, yeah, there, there some some forms of personality disorders and just like not even that, but just interpersonal problems are so kind of covert and they're so because I feel like people say I, I feel like people are always trying to look for like the most broad you know, big actions to determine whether somebody is right. whatever. And whatever. They haven't been hospitalized. They've never been in rehab. Yes. They still have a house. You're like, what? It's the same kind of mentality that says if you're not like in the gutter with a with a mad dog in a paper bag, then you're not an alcoholic. You know, and it, it completely ignores probably what 85% of Correct. alcoholics are, which is highly functioning. Correct. People who don't miss work and, Correct. you know, maybe even people in their lives would never, ever know that they had a drinking problem. So, yeah, so that is validating. I'm happy that for you that you had that experience. And sometimes it takes like 20, 30 years to get that validation. But the truth always, I mean, you know, it's that's true. true. That's the thing. It comes to the surface eventually. Well, and the other thing is I now, as where I used to be so afraid of the truth, and I still am. Look, I I don't like getting, we know this about me. My feedback is hard for me. I'm scared of all the things. But I used to run from the truth like nobody's business in my own ways. Now I sort of cling to it as, wait a second, wait a second. What is the truth of the matter? Like, what are the facts here? Because I feel like that is the only way for me to not get caca cuckoo crazy. And it is comforting. I am comforted in knowing that, like, it was interesting. So I also am taking a solo show writing class. Um, I'm writing a new solo show, my third one. And I'm just started. And I thought, let me take a class with the woman um, who I taught, I did the first one in 04 in LA with anyway, but, um, I was saying on Facebook, like I, I, I'm taking this class with Terry and she's magic and I'm so glad I'm doing it. And da, 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 da. And she was like, Hey, I have a question for you. Can I quote you? And I was like, yes, because in her, in her, like for a, and I said, of course it's all true. Like I didn't have to worry that my quote was somehow dirty or misleading or like not really what I felt like I've done that so much in my life in the past where I've been like oh shit I told them I loved them or I loved their stuff or I loved and I feel inside totally incongruent with that kind of thing no I was like no these are what these are my words now I try to it doesn't always work but I try to just be like okay like what is the truth and if someone had to quote me would I be okay Mm-hmm. And yeah. I, and I am a lot of the time. I was like, of course you can. It's what I I'm. Thank you for asking, but also, it's what I feel in my bones about the, the you that you have a magic when it comes to solo show teaching. That's it. That is the truth. That, of my is, ma- so, that is so cool. It's cool that you're doing that, and I'll, that it, that gave me a reminder. I had wanted to say on this podcast because um, 
you know, we had Jeremy Owens on the podcast yes! and he recently put on his social that he he was doing it kind of as a joke, but I think he's actually doing it now, which is doing another solo show. And I had messaged him to say, you know, I meant what I said when I told you that you should do this and that I would help you. And that goes for anybody because I said I've said that to a lot of people on this podcast. Like if you need help, uh, you know, if this conversation has re-inspired in you a desire to go and do this other creative thing, please. I'm not saying like I'm going to co-write it with you. I'm saying like, let me know if there's something I can do, if I can read it or, or, or bounce it off of you. So that that stands for any of our previous guests. But tell us more about what what's it going to be about? What are you going to be talking about? Well, I don't entirely know, but where I'm leading is, it was interesting in this. See, the thing I forgot, Beans, is that I like writing exercises. I never do them on my own. I never do. So this, she does writing exercises and a meditation before. And I really longed and craved that because I spend so much of my hustle these days. How can I bring in income? How can I advance my career in Hollywood? And that is really shuts down the play aspect of all things. And I'm not saying, you know, I'm not saying that you, that I'm not saying it's bad. All I'm saying is it totally eliminates for me the create like the really raw fun play creativity. Okay. So in this, in this class, I just took it. Like I just took the class. I was like, I'll do it. It's a master class in solo work. I'll do it. She, I like her. She called me. I was on the freeway and I was like, I'll do it. So, um, uh, right now the working title is, and also a solo show more or less. And I don't know if that's going to change, but it is like, I, and, and then in the exercise we did, we had our first class Sunday, it was all about, um, I realized that this solo show needs to be for me more of a call to action that, that, um, we, the, and it really comes from something you said, which is, I'm paraphrasing, but it's like, we are our only hope, which is the good news and the bad news. So like you said, we are the problem. I am the problem, which is great. And also the, you know, terrible. So that is sort of, um, this solo show is more going to be about, it's like more activism based, but in a like creative arts activism way. And, and not just a funny antidotes about my wacky family. And I mean, I would argue, we could argue that like that my last solo show did have that underneath, but I think there needs to be a more like, um, call to action for artists and people like us um, to start doing the things in the arts world that are gonna like help save the planet and I don't know what that means yet but she was like oh this is like more of an activism piece based on what you're like it has that component to it and I was like yeah and then she said if there was a banner we did these cool exercises that there's a banner all over town whatever town you're in advertising your show what would it say and what came to mind in the meditation was it would be a red banner and it would just say um, and it would say hope and then in parentheses it would say sort of so what I realized is I'm obsessed with the parentheses like that's where I live so I live in the world of I love my life parentheses it's a fucking nightmare so I love that kind of thing in my writing and so I was like okay I'm really gonna embrace that so it's like it's like that that stuff I don't know where it's gonna go I don't know what it's gonna happen well Two things. One is you have actually thrown out quite a few excellent 
titles for show for solo shows you'll periodically be like that's the title of my new book or that's yeah. the title of my next my next solo yeah. show so you might have to give a little re-listen to some episodes i wish i could tell you which one i will but, i um, will okay the other thing is something that just came up for me when you said um about the parentheses which i know exactly what you're talking about i was saying like oh yeah she wants to show the good the bad and the ugly oh and then something that occurred to me was like this concept of underbelly like you're showing yes. your soft underbelly. We are. I mean, when I think when a person is maturing into themselves, that's what that's the goal is to get to first accepting your own soft underbelly and then also um, cont- contending with it and then representing it to the world. Because the thing that I've been on recently is like I have done myself and nobody else any favors for the amount of time I've spent misrepresenting myself because my misrepresenting myself has all been based on the lie that I thought there is a person that you are supposed to be and your Uh. job is to be that person and you know instead of like Uh. figure out the person that you are so uh, you know coming into your own power is 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 a lot what we spend what I spent my 30s about like coming into your own power and not to say that I arrived at it but that no but yeah I get you about that and then I think my 40s are more about coming into my own vulnerability and that Mm. both of those things are really two sides of the same coin your power and your vulnerability right because you can't have any power unless you're being honest about you know what the situation is warts and all Today we are talking to Cullen Douglas. Cullen Douglas is an actor, writer, director, and documentary filmmaker who has been on absolutely everything. Most recently you've seen him on Barry, and I love that for you. But he's been, I joke in the in our interview that he's been in absolutely every television show ever made, and that's only a slight exaggeration. He's been on Grey's Anatomy and Private Practice and the uh, 2017 revival of Twin Peaks Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., Pure Genius. He's just been on everything. Deadwood. So he's very experienced. He's very wise. And he's very warm. So I hope you enjoy our conversation with Cullen Douglas. So congratulations, Cullen Douglas. You survived theater school. Uh, You survived two theater schools, as a matter of fact. I did. I was a glutton for punishment, actually. <laughs> yes, I, I couldn't get enough of it. So it was a BFA and an MFA both in acting? No, you know what? It was a zero degree. I I am still just kind of riding by the seat of my pants. <laughs> I actually, uh, when I attended AMDA, it was not a degree program yet. Now it is. But back in the day, it was basically they just kind of said, OK, go audition. Um, and then when I went to Florida School of the Arts, it only had an AA degree. And I literally am still to this day two credits shy of my degree because I had booked a job out of SETC and it was going to be starting. And I was like, I'm not sitting around and getting my degree just so that I can go get a job. So I went, I took the job, and I never looked back. I mean, that is, here's, I was just talking to someone who went to the theater school last night, my friend Lindsay, and we were talking about how conservatory, uh, I wish, 
I wish that I had done things differently, but it is what it is. But what you are reminding me of just go and audition is like the most valuable piece of advice anyone could have given us, which we never got, which was now you, you, the piece of paper that says you have a BFA is not for naught, but it's also not, uh, it doesn't directly correlate to getting jobs. Like it just doesn't. So you, you got a job while you were in school and said, I'm going, you didn't even think about staying or how did that work in your brain? It was, it was because I was literally just the two credit shy kind of thing. And actually the class was, it was sort of a lab where I, you know, I had to help strike sets, but I was so busy with doing shows that I never had time to go help out with strike. So it was one of those things, okay, I'll, I'll require, I'll get that when I can get it, when I have the time and I never did. And then the tour was starting before the false session started. And I was like, you know what? My only regret, honestly, was the fact that I felt like, and, and again, it's not, you know, if somebody were to ask me today, you know, should you go to theater school? Uh, I would say, yes, if that's what really where you want to hone your craft, if you want to, you know, build your community, but don't, um, if you're going to do something like that, go to a program that has an established alumni, because that's where your connections are being made when you get out of school, is that yes. support network that you have. At AMDA at the time, there really wasn't. You know, when I was there, the biggest sort of claim to fame at the time was Tyne Daly. She was a graduate of, of AMDA. Um and so it was it wasn't as if I could reach out to Tyne Daly all of a sudden. And then Florida School of the Arts was and still is such a small art school that there really wasn't anybody for me to reach out to had I gone to Northwestern, had I gone to Juilliard or Yale or, or, or Tisch that I would have had a built-in network of working professionals on the outside. So that was my only regret in that, um, that if I had perhaps gone to a different theater school, maybe I would have had those connections, but I certainly got the education I felt I needed. Oh, well, and also you got the connections while getting paid instead of having to pay, which is uh, was just definitely preferable. And, and speak about, you know, work experience and getting connections. You have been on every television show that has ever existed <laughs> and tons of films too so was your experience that as soon as you started working you were just off to the races I mean I'm not suggesting that it's easy because no life of an actor is easy but have has it been pretty um consistent for you would you say for your career it's been consistently inconsistent um in that, um, wait, I, I just had, have to uh, say that has to be the name of your book. Okay. I, we were talking about earlier before you got on about titles of shows and books, your book could be consistently inconsistent. The Cullen Douglas story. I'm just, I'm just putting it out there. Thank you. Please send Thank me a 10% check to my office. Okay. Yes. Um, no, it really, um, it was one of those things that, um, I, I had a very dear, um, professor at Florida School of the Arts, Patricia Crotty. She was the acting instructor there. And I was doing all of the plays. I was in all of the productions there. And I had kind of 
become the top dog in the school, so to speak. And she pulled me aside one day and she said, you know, the one thing you're going to have to realize is you're probably not going to start working professionally until you're in your 30s. And I didn't really understand what she was saying there. What she was basically commenting on was that I was a young character actor and I didn't look like Jason Priestley. I didn't look, and yet I hadn't grown into my Kramer look either. So I was going to be in this really sort of, where do we cast him? He's talented, but we don't know where to put him. And so I did a lot of theater for a lot of years. And then in my 30s is when I was able to transfer into television and film. Because I finally had kind of caught up to my look. Yeah. So what I appreciate about that is it sounds like she said it. So she said it in a way that wasn't like, being a a jerk, right? Like my experience was feeling that way, except having it told like there is something deficient in you so that you cannot be an ingenue because you're too fat, you're too this. So instead of, hey, go do some theater, do all the things, and then you'll grow into your look. Do not fret. This is like part of the technical side of the business of how a camera sees you and not about your talent, it would have been so much different. Instead, it comes down to, I think a lot of people we've talked to from the DePauls, from the Northwestern say, nobody told me that in a way which was, I could make a plan about it. It was always just, well, you're never going to be cast. So bye. And instead of, hey, maybe you could do theater. Maybe you could write. Maybe you could do something else until Hollywood catches up to the characteriness of you. But exactly I, the, it. Good Patricia. Good Patricia. Is Patricia still around? She is. And she Great. literally just announced today that she's retiring from teaching. Well, Patricia, you so, did good work. And you, you made it so, Colin, part of, it sounds like she encouraged you, because you started with that story of her, encouraged you to know that maybe later it would be your time to be on every single television show ever written. But for the 20s and the, you know, you were going to do some theater and, and get your training, right? Man. And I honestly, I didn't completely understand everything she was saying in that little soundbite because, you know, I was I was sort of standing there saying, Patty, look at all these job offers I just got out of SETCs. You know, I'm going to be working like crazy. And she said, no, 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 don't get me wrong. That The work is going to be there. But as far as what you're seeing in your mind's eye of, you know, Cullen Douglas tonight on The Tonight Show, that's not going to happen until you can kind of get into that other stream, as it were. How, so did that match up? I mean, was that a surprise to you or did that match up with what you already thought about yourself? I don't think any 17 year old, 18 year old necessarily thinks of themselves as a character actor, although it may just be because it never gets put to you that that's an option when you're a teenager. You know, the option is like, as Boz mentioned, ingenue or not ingenue, but um, they never really say like, well, but you, you know, you're going to fit into this different mold. So how did that butt up against what you already thought about yourself. It actually kind of lined up okay with me in in a weird way because at Florida School of the Arts in particular, um, they were so gracious in the fact that when they picked their seasons, they picked shows that it made sense for me to be the lead in. Um, In that, I'm giving you an example, um, 
we did a production of Our Town and I was the stage manager. And, you know, as opposed to being cast as the one of the young, you know, lead ingenue kind of a things. And then we did Bye Bye Birdie and I was cast in the Dick Van Dyke role. And so they did it in such a way that, you know, or when we did uh, Barefoot in the Park, I was Victor Velasco, the old man who lived upstairs. So I was already sort of being primed that I was this character actor and be going to be doing that kind of stuff. And then, quite honestly, as that look started to emerge, I mean, in college, I had sort of a flock of seagulls kind of hairdo thing going on, you know, and then it quickly all went away. And I have been playing about 20 years older in film and television and in theater than I've actually always been. You know, I was playing guys in my, when I was in my, you know, 30s, I was playing guys in my 50s. Now I'm in and my 50s and I'm playing guys in my, in my 70s. 70s. And I think that, Colin, the thing that I'm noticing too is like maybe for men, it's a little different too, right? Like there's something about being like, there's just, and it's a societal thing where like women who are playing, like it's, it's an insult for women when they're like, oh, we're sending you in for a 50 year old and you're 30. But, and I think maybe if you have a certain kind of ego for a man as well, and we all have egos, I mean, it says, but, and I, I love the fact that you did, it doesn't sound like anyway, and you can tell me if I'm wrong, you took it as an insult that they were, that you were going out for roles that, that were for like the Victor Velasco's of the world. You were able to embrace it as you were working. Like that's so I, just, I say this all to say, because I remember in our last class with Jim Osselhoff, who people call hostile prof. And he said to me, you know who you are? And I was like dying to hear you are Michelle Pfeiffer. That was never going to happen. But I was dying to hear. He was like, that's who you he's like, you are the next. And I'm waiting and, and I'm waiting. He goes, Lenny Bruce. And I was like, what the actual fuck is going on? What are you telling me? No idea what a great compliment that was. I was devastated. Devastated. I wanted to quit. I was suicidal. Like, it was just... But anyway, so what I'm saying is you didn't take that and run with it in a way that was like, I am not Jason Priestley and therefore my life is over. You were able to work and, and embrace the roles, it sounds like. I was able to embrace the roles and and I was getting, okay, you're a young Dick Van Dyke. You're a young, this kind of a guy. So I was able to kind of make that connection. I honestly, if we're being completely honest here, I think, how do I put this that it does not sound completely like an asshole? It doesn't but, matter. We always <laughs> sound like assholes but, here. Go ahead. But, but um, at Florida School of the Arts, I was one of I was one of the only straight men at school and therefore Cullen dated a lot. So I was not the fact that I wasn't looking like the young hot stud. You were still getting it. Right. I was still getting it. So <laughs> that didn't it had it not been like that situation. I think I probably would have started to hyperventilate thinking, well, hold it, I'm in my 20s. Why are they making me play these old men? And this is affecting, you know, Cullen's group. But that wasn't the case. And so I, I had sort of a, a false sense of ego, I guess, a little bit, but it was supporting the work that I was doing. 
Yeah, absolutely. So did you grow up always knowing that you wanted to be an actor? Did you think, did you try any other paths first or were you, were you dead set on this? I was dead set when uh, the story goes that when I was four, I asked Santa for a tuxedo to wear to the Emmys and uh, Santa delivered, gave me a, a white dinner jacket and spats and stuff like that. So I was, I was ready to go. Oh my God. Um, do you have that picture? Can you please send us that? Uh, no, no, we have moved so many times when I was growing up. Um, uh, my dad, when I was growing up was an undercover investigative reporter. And so wherever he was basically undercover was where we were living. Wait a minute, wait a minute, uh, wait, a minute, you... wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Okay, uh, this is fantastic because I do a lot of crime writing and so does Gina writes an undercover crime reporter father. Now, right there is sort of burying the lead. What in the hell? He was an undercover, what does that even mean, an undercover? He's not a police officer, but he's an undercover reporter? He was an undercover investigative reporter well, what for does a that period mean? of time. Um, so uh, I'll give you an example. There was a senator at one time back in the early 70s who was receiving kickbacks from his employees or hiring people on the books. And those people weren't actually having jobs. And so they would then send him the money. He was getting all of the money. And sure, so like Chicago. It's goods. like living in right. Chicago all day. So um, the, somebody tipped my father off that this was happening. And so he went undercover and, and worked as sort of like an aide and things like that. Or um, there was a time where he, he worked at a meatpacking place or he worked at um, a funeral parlor that was selling um, caskets with fake bottoms. And so people would buy these incredibly expensive things and then they would drop them and then they'd open up the hatch and the body would just drop into a pine box and then they would reuse the the casket. This so, is the single greatest thing I've ever heard in my life and I'm going to write a pilot about it immediately called Fake Bottom no, and it's no. going to... See, I've already wrote... That was... Oh. I actually wrote a spec pilot Son and that's how a... I landed my lit agent. Oh, well, um, it was because what ended up happening is um, my dad, much to my mom's chagrin, um, used me in two of his undercover stings when I was a kid. Um, one time there was a situation where firemen had been hired and they weren't actually properly trained. It was another one of those kind of kickback situations. So it was a training session and they I was supposedly it was a staged event where they were going to try to test the skills of the firemen or whatever. And so I was going to I practiced with a real fireman being firemen carried up and down a ladder from a second story kind of a thing. But once the word was out that it was an internal sting, they put me into one of those crane baskets. And so I was sort of floating over Midtown in, in the basket kind of a thing. And then another time, actually, there was a talent agent who was running um, a kiddie porn ring. And uh, so I was sort of used to expose, so to speak, 
um, this this person that was actually trying to take advantage of of kids and parents. Oh, my God. Well, two things occur to me about that. One is your family was already full of drama before you came along. I mean, anybody who wants to write, who wants to do this investigative journalism, like that's that's a dramatic person. I love David Carr. I love that kind of personality of, her, you know, the person who wants to like really get in there and investigate. And just as an aside, like, I'm sorry for the families who paid for those coffins, but at the same time, you know, good good on them because it's such a waste how much money we've all spent putting mahogany boxes into the ground to, 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 to decompose over time. Okay, so did your parents like that you wanted to be an actor or did they have a different idea for plan for you? No, they, they were 100% supportive. Um, they're very, very much so from day one. I think because it was my mom who really sort of stepped in and said, hey, let's figure out how we can get this new kid who's always the new kid to find his people. And she, she took me when I was 11 years old to a local community theater, children's community theater. And they were doing a production, a musical version of The Hobbit. And, um, you know, the intention was that I was just going to audition and be, you know, Hobbit number 40 in the background kind of a thing. Third, and third habit from the left. Third habit from the left. Um, and so um, they auditioned and I remember um, you had to sing a song and God, I have not told this story. Um, you had to sing a song and I decided to sing tomorrow from Annie. Um, because I was madly, deeply in love with Andrea McArdle, um, and we were actually pen pals. And so I went in there and I sang Tomorrow and jump cut to that weekend. And my mom came in Saturday morning smiling as I was watching cartoons. And she said, you've been cast in the lead as Bilbo Baggins. And that was sort of like, okay, I, I, I found my people. That's amazing. Please tell us more about your pen palship with Andrea McArdle. <laughs> so I I just I you know I I had gotten the album when it came out and I listened to it and I memorized it and even then I was casting myself as either Rooster or Daddy Warbucks, you know, and so um somehow I found her address and sent her you know, a, a letter as we used to write, you know, before texting and she wrote back and then I wrote back. And then the thing that was really exciting was 20. Wait a minute. Are you married later, to Annie? No, I am not married to Annie. Okay. Um, but um, 20 some odd years later, um, I was doing a national tour and staying in a hotel in Hershey, Pennsylvania Andrea was on tour doing a national tour and was staying in the same hotel, kind of bumped into one another and was like, you know, you don't know who I am, but this, <laughs> and it ended up, it was wonderful because I went to see her show on my dark night and she and her family came to see me on, on the other night. So beautiful. Okay. So here we go. Your family's on board and um, why didn't you just go and strike it out either in New York or anywhere? Why did you end up going to school? Were you like, I want to learn more? Or how did that transition into schooling go? I did, I did want to learn more. It, it really was because up at that point, 
the only influences as far as acting I was going was from, you know, the either the community theater directors or the high school drama teacher who had, you know, aspirations for theater, but was really just doing it because he didn't want to coach the football team. So I felt like I needed a stronger foundation for myself. Um, and but always it was sort of like I was going to the theater school because I didn't feel like, oh, I don't want to go to a school where I'm going to have to learn all of these other things that I'm not going to ever use. Now I look back and go, God, you know, I wish I had done some of that other stuff because I did not create any kind of a fallback plan for me. It I was mean, yeah. this is either going to work or it's not going to work and you're going to be screwed. I mean, and here's so, the thing. Here's yeah. the thing. I don't know what you, you two think, but like there is this two schools of, well, there's probably a bajillion schools of thought, but one of them is like, if you have a fallback plan, you will fall back. The other one is not everyone is going to be a Colin Douglas or a John C. Riley that's going to work, 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 work. So a fallback plan for some of us might have been like another avenue to get into the industry, right? Uh, but a fallback plan can also literally have people go and not live their dreams and become, you know, actuary scientists because they're afraid. So it's like, it's so individual, which is why I think theater school training is so tricky is because you're taking young individuals who don't know shit and some know what they want to do. Some don't, some are good, some are talented, but not, it's so individual. So it's like when people ask me, should I go to theater school? I'm like, I fucking don't know who I'm like, who are you? And what do you yeah. want to do on the planet? But nobody ever asked me that as a 17-year-old. So here we are. Gina, you were going to say something. <laughs> oh, I was just going to say, ask if you remember your audition. My audition into theater school? Um, okay. So um, I do. I remember my audition into um, AMDA. Um uh, and again, I already recognizing I was a character actor. Um, I sang "If I Were a Rich Man" from Fiddler on the Roof. You know, <laughs> uh, uh, you know, a skinny ass, you know, kid from you know suburbia singing that song. And then um, I did a monologue from a play that I had done in high school. Um, and uh, which one do you remember or no it's okay it was know. it yes I, no actually it was weird because i look back on it now kind of thinking how the soul sometimes prepares i think sometimes um it was a from a show called juvie and um i played a young gentleman who um was mentally challenged and um i got a lot of incredible feedback from from the role because I had researched I had I had gone to the library and this is there was a thing called microfish when you would go to the library and you'd have to look up stories on kind of like a big machine and I did all of these kind of things and researched the roles and I saw images of babies and young people with different kind of cognitive delays and so I did that I got into AMDA whatever again, sort of jumping forward in life. Um, in 1996, my oldest son was born and he happened to be born with Down syndrome. And when I, I met him for the first time at the bassinet, I immediately went back to that microfish machine in high school 
and remembered seeing babies and images of people with Down syndrome. And so I made that kind of connection. So it was sort of like, all right, this is where life was going. Um, as far as Florida School of the Arts went, um, I actually didn't audition for that. Um, what had happened is I was at AMDA. I broke my foot um, during one of the dance uh, classes. They would bring in dance captains from various Broadway shows and teach us routines. And we were doing a routine from Cats. And I jumped off of a piling and I came down flat. Let me tell you something. This is, what, this is just one of the many reasons I don't care for that musical. Is that... Also, what are you having people jumping around for that aren't, I just, anyway, I'm glad they brought, I'm sure it was a great experience in some ways, but like, I just don't care for, that was my first musical I saw. And I, even as a kid, I was like, I don't buy this at all. I don't know what's going on here, but I don't like it. But anyway, so you busted your foot. Oh, and can I just say about microfiche? I'm sorry to be an asshole, but like, I could never figure out how to slow the fucking shit down and I never could see a goddamn story. So I gave up on the microfiche. So you made it further than me. I was like, why is it going? going too fast that was my that's like like that's like so indicative of my life but anyway so okay so you you broke your foot and so what happened you had to why did you so I, I broke my foot I went home to my parents place who were now living in Florida and kind of rehabbed for a while I then auditioned for a play um uh, for Pirates of Penzance excuse me that was um up of performances up near St. Augustine, Florida. And I went up there and I was playing Samuel, the the second pirate. Um, and the gentleman who was playing the modern major general in the show was actually the dean and artistic director of Florida School of the Arts. And he said to me, if you'd like to come to school, we'll offer you a full scholarship and you can start at the as soon as the show closes. Um, and so that's what I did. It was like I just went straight to Florida School of Arts and I did not go back up to AMDA um, so, after my foot had Colin, it's really interesting. Like, And I was talking about this with someone else yesterday about how one, obviously, one thing leads to the next. Oh, it was a showrunner, actually, that was that I was listening to a lecture. And she just said that what I've done is I have walked through doors that have opened to me without a lot of second guessing. I followed my heart in terms of who took interest in me and who opened doors for me. I walked through them. I didn't say no, but, or no, I just did it. And so it sounds like that's what you did. You were like, oh, full ride. I'm in Florida now. You could have been like, no, no, no. I'm going to go back to AMDA because whatever. But you were like, I'm going to do this. And um, it sounds like it worked in your favor. But what was your experience like at Florida? Did you, I mean, obviously we know you left early, but did you get stuff out of it? Did you love it? What was the deal? I did love it in the sense that, um, because it was such a small school and because where the school is located, it's in Palatka, Florida, which is sort of geographically in the middle of sort of Jacksonville and Gainesville. And so on a Friday night, there really wasn't any partying going on. It was all of us getting together and doing monologues for one another, you know, <laughs> because there wasn't any place to really go. And then as far as the classes went, because it was such a small institution, so many of my classes were literally just myself and the professor. 
in their office and we would do, you know, that's how I learned dialects was literally just, you know, we were working on the Italian dialect or whatever. And I would go in and the professor would speak to me in that Italian dialect. And then I would have to answer him and that would be the entire class. And then the next week we would do the Brooklynese. And so I had all of that and they were very, very gracious to me because when I came in as quote, a freshman, I was taking all of the freshman courses, but then they also had me taking all of the second year mm -hmm. acting courses as well, sort of accelerating me through the program and then allowing that by doing that, I was able to be cast in all of their different productions. So when you did uh, finish with school and enter the workforce, um, what if what surprised you about sort of the business that maybe you weren't expecting or hadn't been prepared for, for in terms of your training or, you know, and it could have been a happy surprise or, or, or not such a happy surprise, but like, what was something, I always just feel like there's people have their list of things. Oh, I never thought the one that people always bring up is coverage. I never thought when I watched TV shows that they'd had to do the same thing 50 times. I think um, for, for me, the biggest sort of, even though Patty Crotty, Patricia Crotty had said, you know, Hey, it's going to be a while before you're going to start to work. You know, although I did work immediately when I got out of school, um, it was it was one of those things where I quickly realized that they really didn't care that I had played Albert in Bye Bye Birdie. They didn't care that I was in all of the productions. It was basically, no, you've earned the right to stand in the back of the line. And you're going to have to, you know, get up at an ungodly hour, go to equity sign in at 6 a.m. and then come back at two in the afternoon for your audition. But by the time you come back, if you pick up backstage, you're going to read that Robert Sean Leonard has already been offered the role that you're auditioning for at two o'clock. So those were sort of some of the realities of, oh, okay, this is not necessarily going to be the projecting thing that's going to get me into the room. It's just it's going to be more for me that, okay, I feel like I deserve to be here and I'm confident enough in my abilities. But I, I think that was as far as just working in general. But um, Gina, to answer the question as far as like the thing that I was most surprised by within the industry, I'm, I'm trying to think if there was anything that I really was sort of taken aback by well um, i guess i can ask like yeah. did you what was your like did, like in terms of getting an agent and all that did anything there go like oh my gosh i didn't understand that i would have to how did your representation come about was that a surprise or did you just get an agent because a lot of our listeners some of them we talk you know we talk about like a showcaser but you left early and just started working so what was that transition like in terms of getting representation and going on auditions for film and tv or theater and and if you think of anything that surprises you along the way, just let us know. But sure. um, I didn't have theatrical, I, I didn't have legit theater representation for a lot of years. I was literally very lucky in that, you know, just using relationships, you know, to help propel me into the next situation that, 
one show would be closing and I would hear about the fact that they were looking for something else, or I would go to the Southeastern Theater Conference and audition and be able to pick up my next year or year and a half worth of work. And I was able to kind of keep it at that point. I finally did get an agent who was going to cover me theatrically as well as, you know, commercially. And I remember her telling me, she was basically saying the same thing that Patty Crotty had said, is that, you know, you know, you're a good actor, I'll put you out there, but it's it's probably going to be a while before you're going to book a commercial or any kind of television because you're just really hard to place. She was good to her word. She put me out there. And a week later, I booked a Budweiser commercial. So I was like, oh, okay, I think I got this. I, I think the hardest lesson that I had to learn was that because it sometimes came easy, it felt like, like, oh, okay, this is what it was, is I would get say to that chunk of change and i it took me a while to figure out that i had to make that chunk of change stretch as far as i possibly could because i didn't know exactly when the next job was coming from and and then it was hard when i met and fell in love with my wife who was coming she had been a model but she had also worked in the corporate world and so she was very accustomed to well no you make this amount of money every month and this is what you can expect with your expenses it was hard when we started to realize oh no cullen just got a great windfall of money but if you break it down and spread it out over a year he's not making minimum wage so you know it was a really that was a hard kind of thing to adjust with yes I mean, that's, yes, that's a common story. And that's something that they don't teach you about in theater school. They don't teach you money management and how you have to withhold taxes and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. So that, that's, that's, um, that's a whole education in and of itself. Um, But you are also a writer and director. When did the writing and directing and producing come into your career? The writing actually started in college. Um, in that we would have to have monologues for class. And I had an affinity to writing the monologues. And so I started writing monologues for my classmates for beer money. Um, or they would need an audition piece for something in particular. And so I would tailor it to sort of echo whatever play that they were auditioning for kind of a thing. Um, and so it really just sort of came easy for me. And then whenever I was auditioning, my biggest thing was I don't want to go in there with something that they have seen 3000 times. And so I was like, okay, you know what? I'm just going to write my own thing. And it worked. It worked to a degree. And so that's where I sort of started to do it. And then personally, after my oldest son, Gabe, was born, I had a lot of demons to be dealing with. I, I didn't understand why I had been chosen or whatever, or, or given a child with a disability. And, and it took me kind of having to get out of my own way to realize that was the least interesting thing about him. And, but in doing so, I, I started to write uh, in journals and then I ended up writing a one man play that I in turn toured the country with for a handful of years. And it was that play that I then attracted some other attention and then got hired on 
to do some other writing and script doctoring or whatever. And then, as I shared earlier, I wrote a spec script about that time of my life when we were kind of moving into hotels and things like that. And then that kind of just started to snowball. And then I was very fortunate back in 2010, um, I had uh, uh, the Humanitas organization, um, Humanitas Prize. They tapped me as the first recipient of their New Voices uh, Fellowship Program, which pairs you with showrunners um, to sort of mentor you in creating um, a television series. And so I was shared with, uh, paired with Shonda Rhimes over at Shondaland and was able to develop a show, which was actually an adaptation of my one man play about a family, you know, coming to terms and dealing with a child with a disability. Um, but I had already actually had a relationship with Shonda prior to that because um, I had gotten cast in an episode of Grey's Anatomy um, and she and her producing partner, Betsy Beers, put me up for an Emmy for that role. Um, and then when I didn't get the nomination, Shonda turned around and created a role for me over on private practice. Okay. So you know all these people, and I guess I'm mindful of time, and I want to know, what the hell are you are you doing now? You have this documentary. What is your jam right this second, Cullen Douglas? And if you could do anything, what would it be? And tell us about this documentary, because what I don't want to happen is it's like 10 minutes go by, and we haven't heard about the documentary, and we haven't heard about, like, what is your jam and your juice right this second? Okay, so I, I made the documentary. Um, I started working on it uh, when we got locked down. Um, you know, the world was hurting. The industry was shut down. I couldn't stand in front of a camera. I couldn't direct a bunch of actors in a narrative, but I knew I could still tell stories. And so... Um, uh, at one point in my career, I detoured and I was an associate show director and a performer at Walt Disney World. Um, I was there for about three years. And the level of talent in those theme parks is just incredible. You know, there are a lot of people who come out of theater schools and they get their job, you know, at Dollywood or at Busch Gardens or at Disney World or Disneyland. And they spend the summer there. And then they go off and do whatever else with their life. There are other individuals like the subject of my film, Billy Flanagan, who he started right after theater school. He went to Boston Conservatory. He then um, opened up Epcot in 1982 as a kid of the kingdom and has been working for 40 years straight as a performer out at Disney. When the Disney park shut down because of the pandemic, Billy was without a stage for the first time in his 40-year career. So what he did is he took it upon himself to start doing singing and dancing telegrams for other performers who were out of work. And then he started to literally take it on the road because he's a cyclist. And he started crisscrossing the entire country, delivering these singing and dancing telegrams called flanograms. And my Facebook page was blowing up with I got flanogrammed, I got flanogrammed. And I so I reached out to some old friends from Disney and I said, I've heard about this name Billy Flanagan for years. He's a he's a legend. He was a legend 20 years ago when I was working. You know, can you put me in touch with him? 
And so I spoke with Billy. I reached out to my producing partner and I said, there's a documentary here because Billy has just been so incredibly selfless. He's always a pay it forward kind of a guy. He's a performer's performer, you know, even though he jokes about the fact that he'll get a nosebleed if he's not on center. But it's one of those things where he just really is about making the other people on stage look good. Um, so he's been the face of Disney. But then what ended up happening is he was so busy working and raising an entire family that a handful of years ago, Billy finally slowed down and realized that he had been living a different life than he perhaps should have been. And he came out and it really destroyed his family and and brought things down. And so you had this guy who day in and day out was still having to give that Disney, you know, razzmatazz. But behind the scenes, as we all know, as performers, the show's got to go on. And so his heart was breaking. And so I said to Billy, look, if we tell your story, we're going to have to tell all of it. Because I feel like you sharing your humanity and your pain is going to help other people out there within the LGBT community who are feeling bullied or feeling like they don't have their place. So if we can do this, this is this is sort of our mandate. And he said yes. And his family said yes. And and thankfully, not as a direct link to the film, but I shared the final cut with Billy and his family because obviously I had to have their final approval. And Billy called me and said, this film is helping heal my family now um, oh, because it had given them that creative distance that it was no longer them. It was these other people up on a screen talking about a period of their life. So right now the film it, uh, premieres digitally on October 7th and then is available on DVD November 15th and then uh, after the first of the year, it'll be looking like landing on one of the major streamers. Oh, um, that's fantastic. So. I'm so excited to see it because I watched the trailer and that thing that you were describing about, you know, he's 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 got to always have a stage that comes through from the first frame you see him. You think, wow, this guy is like a consummate performer in a way that I could never imagine. I mean, yes, I, I I love to be on stage. It's fantastic. But I I don't have this thing where like, you know, I've got to be performing every second. And that was really clear. And I didn't know, I didn't glean from the trailer that he was doing that for fun for other performers. I thought he was just starting his business with the singing telegram. So that is even more interesting. Okay, that's really cool. So after the first of the year, it'll come out on a streamer. And, and actually, when you know which one it is, you'll let us know and we'll we'll promote yeah. it on our socials. And okay, I wanted but you can pre-order now. Okay. okay. Good. So, the DVD and, so, and the digital. Yeah, okay. I didn't mean to like cut us off from Shondaland, but I really wanted to make sure that we talk about this documentary because I think Thank that you. it's taking your career and your life in it. It's like it's made it bigger and about other things, other than I mean, it's like there's a service component to documentary work that like I think is not always there in other kinds of media that documentary work is like at once 
for me anyway, really personal, but also universal and also has a great capacity for healing. And so, or at least the truth, right? Like what is the truth? So that's why I wanted to make sure we covered that. But if there's other things you want to say about your career and like what you're doing now and where you want to go or anything else, I want to give you the opportunity, but I wanted to make sure. Um, so I didn't mean to cut off your Shonda Land story because I know no. people are probably like, oh my God, tell more about Shonda Rhimes. But I wanted to talk about the the Billy documentary. I appreciate that so much. Um, no, I, I uh, you know, just to sort of bookend the, the documentary, I never felt like uh, it was one of those things that I knew I could tell stories, but I didn't feel like I had any business telling a documentary. I don't necessarily even gravitate towards documentaries, um, but I just felt like, hold it, this truly is a story that that needs to be told and can maybe bring about a little bit of healing. And that's what I think good films and television do, that you we, we see ourselves mirrored back in many ways and we feel less alone. And so I felt like if I could do that with a narrative, maybe I can do it with a, a documentary. That's not to say that I want to become a documentarian, because it's not that I wouldn't if the opportunity ever presented itself, but it's the same way in which, you know, writing a narrative feature, it's like, well, I've got to be compelled to want to tell this story kind of a thing. And this just happened to be the medium in which to tell it, um, as opposed to making a, you know, a, a film about a guy right. named Billy who wants to start so out being a performer. And I think that you said a really good word that we talk about sometimes in other ways on this show and in my life I talk about is being compelled. So when a someone is compelled to do something, I know that the art created from that feeling of being compelled is usually authentic, true, necessary, and 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 in sometimes healing. So I love the word what doing projects that were compelled. So anything else that you're compelled to do right now? Uh, work. <laughs> Great. Really? Yeah. Um, you know, I, I, I really, I, I still, even after, you know, making this, this film, I, I am still very much an actor at heart. Um, and I love being on camera. I love the collaborative experience working with other actors um, you know, I was very, very fortunate this past season um, to to work on Barry um, with Bill Hader and Bill. I guess if I, it was like, what's next? What's my next jam? I would love to be able to emulate what Bill is doing. You know, Bill is the lead. He's also writing. He's also directing all of the episodes. You know, I joked with him that he also ran craft services because it was literally doing all those things and just watching him effortlessly move from being Barry back to Bill, giving me a note and then giving a note to the DP and then stepping back into Barry was just a really wonderful thing. And it's like, you know what, if I can do that, and I have other friends and, and mentors like Tom Verica. Um, Tom actually directed me in that first episode of Grey's Anatomy. And he and I have since become dear friends. He's now the executive producer and resident director on Bridgerton. Um, he also was the resident director and producer on Inventing Anna. And he and I have developed a narrative film 
um, that we're looking to produce as well. And, and, and so again, and yet, you know, Tom as sort of an aspiration or an inspiration for me, you know, he started out as an actor himself and then, you know, he directed a lot of Grey's Anatomy. And then the next thing you know, he's playing Viola, Viola Davis's husband on How to Get Away with Murder. And then he was also the lead producer on Scandal. So it's like, you know, not being defined by what this industry wants to put you in. I feel like I'm finally at the point in my career where Cullen can direct a documentary and he could write something for somebody else and he could act. And and. Again, you know, from day one, when I when I left Flow Arts early to go out and do the job, it's just because I want to keep working. Yeah. That, and that's that's a, everybody says that everybody says, I just wish I could be working constantly because that's where it's where all the fun of of the work is, you know, not auditioning and <laughs> getting headshots and whatever. It's 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 doing the work. By the way, Barry is how I came to ask you to be on this podcast, because um I didn't watch it when it first came out. I I kind of came to it late and of course binged the whole thing and it's fantastic. And and I immediately went and looked up every single actor to see who went to theater school because I, I would love to have them all. What a fantastic show. And what an interesting kind of nice little parallel somehow with your documentary and, and, and also your own story. There's a lot about actors like figuring out what they're doing on screen and and kind of reconciling that with their off-screen life or or even just with their career. Do I want to be this type of actor? Do I want to be this type of person? You know, ha- and Bill Hader has seamlessly gone. I mean, once upon a time, you would not have really thought of a Saturday Night Live person making quite this kind of crossover. And the humor in that show about actors is so perfect. I've ne- I've seen things that have come close to that, but I've never seen something that you're just dying laughing if you know anything about the acting profession, right? Yeah. Bob, were you going to say that? Yeah. I was going to say that and also that like his account so I have suffered, you know, from panic attacks and anxiety disorder and his journey through that and with that has given me so much hope as a artist because he was one of the first people I knew, especially from SNL, especially from comedy to say, I was struggling with this and this is how I dealt with it. So it didn't totally destroy my life. And he could have chosen to be like, I'm having panic attacks on set at Saturday Night Live. I'm done, I'm done. But he worked through it and now is doing all of this. So it gives me a lot of hope. So if you talk to him, tell him there's a lady, an anxious lady that really feels like I can, I can really reclaim myself as an artist and even maybe thrive through the anxiety. I, I I so appreciate that, uh, Jen. I really do. You know, I have dealt with panic attacks um, over the years. You know, again, being that new kid, I was kind of predisposed to, oh, my gosh, you know. And luckily, I've never had it within my art. Um, it's always been on the other side. But the way in which Bill has navigated all of that is really, truly just, you know, motivating and inspiring uh, on so many different levels. And I think the thing that I also recognize is the fact that Bill never had aspirations to be on SNL. He wanted to be a filmmaker. You know, he was editing, he was doing all these types of things and he sort of fell in backwards 
to groundlings and, and all that kind of stuff. And somebody saw him and said, hey, let's do it. It's sort of like he had to kind of take that detour to be able to get back to doing the kind of things that he really wanted to be doing, you know, which is great for me because I look at like my time at Disney. OK, I never would have imagined that that brief time at Disney would have been able to fuel me in that it brought back into my life to allow me to direct a film about one of their performers it's, 20 years later. It's a, your story. I'm so glad you came on because your story is a story about the, the consistent inconsistencies and the detours that aren't really detours and for me like just being like i'm just knowing now going into into meetings being a former therapist for felons like that is the thing that people are really interested in and i fucking never could have planned that in my whole fucking life and now i'm like wait what so it all works all our lives and you're a great example of this and it's a great way to sort of end the interview and, and say like you're a great example of that detours seeming detours are maybe just like the thing that is called for and needed in the moment and you don't know where you're gonna go but it's not like i think a lot of actors that i talk to it's like oh my god i'm taking a step back i'm taking a step back i'm going backwards in my career and i'm like wait a second no you're not you're just doing other things on your path so anyway it's you're not sort a of, detour at all it's the path it's right. the path <laughs> it just goes that way I literally said almost what you just said, Jen, to my youngest son, Cameron, who has just started his junior year at the University of California, Santa Barbara as a film major. And he had taken a gap year um, just pr prior to the pandemic and had gone off and worked as a sous chef at a, a place in uh, St. Croix and then came back and all of a sudden he was in lockdown and he was taking his college courses and he felt the other day he was expressing like, I feel like I've had to take this really, I took a wrong turn in this heart. I was like, no, buddy, no, this is awesome. Because now you've had this life experience that's bringing you to a different place in your art and in your life and in your relationships that just hold on because it's just going to get more and more exciting at this oh. point. Well, yeah. why, why, the other question is, why Why weren't you my dad? I mean, you're my age, so I'm not going to say that. But, like, I wish that was – I mean, that's kind of weird. But I'm just getting vibes of, like, oh, your kids are lucky. Um, yeah, for so sure. thank this you. This has been fantastic, Colin. Where can people find you? Where can they find me? They can find me on Instagram uh, at realcullendouglas.com. I believe that's my handle. Sure. <laughs> or just uh, real Colin Douglas, yeah, on Instagram. Uh, mm -hmm. I think so. I think I am. Um, and then they can certainly look up Billy Flanagan, um, the happiest man on earth. Um, and, uh, you know, just keep your eyes peeled. I've, I've got a couple of film projects that are coming out um, and uh, recurring on a, a television show that's going to be coming out. Hey. Um, so uh, hopefully uh, I'll just keep working. Oh, um, yeah. We'll be seeing you everywhere. We'll Thank see you, you everywhere. Thank you so much for your Thanks, time. Colin. Really If you liked what you heard today, please give us a positive five-star review and subscribe and tell your friends. I Survive Theater School is an Undeniable Inc. production. Jen Bosworth Ramirez and Gina Polici are the co-hosts. This episode was produced, edited, and sound mixed by Gina Polici. For more information about this podcast or other goings-on of Undeniable Inc., please visit our website at undeniablewriters.com. You can also follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Thank you.